Welcome to The Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK Magazine and JCK Online. Today, JCK's Rob Bates and Victoria Gamowski talk with Carol Capizzi, CEO at Chow Tai Fook. everyone. Welcome to the Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and JCK Online. And I'm with... Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and JCK Online. How are you? I'm great. I'm excited. We've got a wonderful guest today. She's somebody I've come to know a little bit more this year. We worked together on a wonderful initiative through Diamonds Do Good, and she's joining us from Boston today. I wonder if you can guess. She's a major, major executive in this business. For those of you who haven't guessed, Carol Capisi, CEO at Chow Thai Fook North America. Welcome, Carol. Hi. Hey, Victoria. Hi, Rob. You said major, major executive. My mother would love that. (laughs) Everybody else, I laugh. <laughs> Seriously, when I think of the five top executives in this business, you're definitely, you come to mind. I mean, you're just somebody who I feel is involved in a lot of things. So you, your name kind of came to the fore through Hearts on Fire. And we'll obviously talk about your background in this industry, but you, you seem to be involved, obviously, in Diamonds Do Good and other industry bodies. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it's great to be here. I'm super excited to be talking to you guys. Yeah. So here we are in mid-November. Before we dive into all the things going on in this crazy year, we always like to ask our guests just how they got into this business. Yeah, well, it's funny because, you know, I just sort of fell into it. I had an older brother who was in magazine publishing and an older sister who was in advertising and what they did looked really fun and interesting to me. So I sort of said, you know what, I'm going to try and do the same thing. And I ended up getting a job at NWR, which is an advert was an advertising agency, really one of the biggest agencies back then. This was now the late 80s. And um, you know what, I just landed on the De Beers account. And it was, you know, luck, really. And you know, they had so many big businesses from AT&T to Continental. And it was really luck of the draw then, thank God, because it really was an incredible experience. So I stand corrected then. So it was NW Air and then it ended up becoming the J. Walter Thompson account, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's so funny when you look back because, you know, that time on the De Beers account was just so different, right? De Beers wasn't really coming into the United States. So we were really acting on their behalf. Uh, I worked at NWR eight or nine years And then De Beers chose to actually pick up the team and move the team over to J. Walter Thompson. We didn't miss a beat. We left end of the year on a Friday afternoon and started at J. Walter Thompson on a Monday morning. And it was pretty unusual at the time. You know, I always talk about the fact that that was an incredible team and it was led to focus on loyalty to each other, loyalty to team loyalty to De Beers. And while we were employees at NWR, we probably all saw ourselves as employees or members of the De Beers team and the De Beers company just as much. The cool thing about De Beers back then was they were doing integrated marketing before anyone really even talked about it. So you had the Diamond Advertising Group, which was the creative and the media and the strategy. You had a Diamond Information Center, which did the PR. You had the Diamond Promotion Service, which many of the jewelers and manufacturers know. They were out in the channel. You had sort of the brand group that were the people that did all the research and figured out what the next milestone product would be. 
So it was really a pretty unique setup at a time when really agencies were just making TV commercials and print ads. Wow. A lot of people talked about how successful those campaigns were and people missed those campaigns. Was there anything that you think really made those campaigns so successful? Yeah, you know, I think anybody who's been in the role of trying to develop marketing campaigns for diamond jewelry in the past 20 years looks back on those campaigns and says, why were they so powerful? What was it about them? And I think it was a couple of things. I mean, I think it was rooted in real consumer research. Back then, De Beers did incredible research. They probably still do, but at the time then, they were doing great research on consumer behavior and really developing new products that would connect themselves to milestone occasions that really resonated with women and men. And then I think the most important thing they did is they not only created this campaign and created a purpose for that campaign to be successful, but then they had all these other tentacles that reached into the supply chain and made it work. If you created a campaign for five-year anniversary or 10-year anniversary bands, you had manufacturer programs that brought in all the manufacturers that made those bands. You had retailer programs that brought in all the big retailers that sold them. You had extensive training that went right out into the sales associates at the counter and helped them speak confidently about why these products are important. And then, of course, you had the millions of dollars of consumer advertising to create the demand. So you had all these different elements working in consort to try and literally create a movement. And that's what they did. And they did it for engagement rings with two months salary. They did it with anniversary bands for 10 years. And then the industry changed, right? But that was a, a real sweet spot in the industry and the category that everyone looks back on and says, wow, when it worked, it really worked well. It's hard to imagine today's marketplace is so different. When did you make Witch to Hearts on Fire then? I left the De Beers account in 1999. So I left because I got married and my husband was from Boston and I moved up to Boston. So I left the industry. When I got to Boston, there was really nothing in the way of jewelry. So I worked for another advertising agency and I threw myself into the cruise world and I worked for Royal Caribbean and Celebrity Cruises. But the interesting thing about it is when I left... I had never heard of Hearts on Fire ever. I didn't know anything about it. And I felt like I was right in the throes of the industry. In 1997, I got a headhunter call to actually talk to someone about this diamond jewelry company in Boston called Hearts on Fire. And I was like, Hearts on Fire? I've never even heard of that. And it just so happened that Hearts on Fire was created in 96, and that's when they exploded, when I wasn't even involved in the industry. So then when I joined Hearts on Fire in 2007, I just sort of took the information and the learning and all of that experience from De Beers. I added all I had learned when I was in the cruise industry, and then I just went to town. But the idea of telling a story, having real differentiation, really working with the industry to grow and build the brand Hearts on Fire was the thing that was most exciting. I mean, we didn't spend $20 million in advertising. We actually went to the 2000 sales associates and independent jewelers who stood at the counter and we built our loyalty for the brand with them. And then they became and still are our most amazing advocates because 
As we all know, when you're buying diamond jewelry and you're in a jewelry store, the sales associate, these incredible sales associates have 95% of the control of what walks out of that case. You know, they educate, they build and create trust, and the consumer looks to them to help them make the best decision. And with Hearts on Fire, we grew that brand through this incredible army of sales associates and independent jewelers. And we had events like Hearts on Fire University, where associates and owners and managers would be in a giant ballroom in Las Vegas for four days, just getting smart and being trained and learning why the idea and story of Hearts on Fire is meaningful. You know, I went to Hearts on Fire University. I'm imagining, Rob, you did too. I'll never forget standing in the Mirage Ballroom with just, it felt like a ballroom of acolytes. You know, it wasn't just salespeople there for a conference. It was real believers. Yeah, yeah. The nice thing about it, it's not just training and learning, but it's camaraderie and, you know, building a network, like sort of this friendly competition where everyone wants the best for each other, but they also want to reach their personal best in terms of performance. So it's exciting. It's definitely an adrenaline boost for anyone who's ever been. So um, we actually were quite fortunate that we did not have one planned this year because obviously it wouldn't have been able to happen. So we'll have to sort of take a breather and see what the future holds. But, you know, Hearts and Fire as a brand has always been known for education and training. And I think we will continue to do that. Just probably it'll look different. It'll may not take the same form. The When Hearts on Fire came around, it was just before Supply of Choice, and a lot of people thought it was going to be kind of the vanguard of a lot of diamond brands and, you know, obviously a lot of launches of brands. And yet this is really one of the few that survived. Most of them are gone at this point. Why do you think you guys had perhaps more staying power than some of the other ones? You know, I look back and I, when I started in 2007, as you said, Rob, there were a lot of other brands, you know, I wouldn't call them consumer brands. They were all industry brands. And I think what happened, and this was probably a result of supplier of choice as well, you know, we're not an industry of marketers. We're an industry of diamond tears. And when everyone set out to create brands, I don't think they had the patience to withstand what it took to actually create a brand. You can't dump millions of dollars in it for two, three, four years, and voila, you have a brand. It is a decades-long investment they're building for the future. So, you know, we're still here. I think it does take an investment. It takes an investment of financial resource, human resource. Thankfully, now we have Chow Thai Fook behind us. So we have the strength and the size of a company like Chow Thai Fook. So we can see 10 and 20 years out, but it's expensive undertaking to build a brand. And that's probably what the difference was. If you're a fan of podcasts, you know that listener reviews help make them possible. Please rate, review, and subscribe to The Jewelry District wherever you may listen. And now, back to the show. You mentioned Chow Tai Fook, and they acquired the brand in 2014. Is that right? Yes, in September of 14. What has that been like? What kind of changes did they institute, or what can you say about the last six years of being under that umbrella? 
You know, I think it was a marriage that was bringing two companies together that really meant to be together. We're very different. Obviously, Chow Tai Fook is an enormous publicly traded retailer and jeweler in mainland China and Hong Kong. And Hearts on Fire and Memoir are this, you know, smaller wholesale company in America based in Boston, selling all through independent retailers and department stores. And um, while we look very, very different on paper, we actually came together and melded really, really well, right from the very first conversation we had. The chemistry was immediate. You know, they don't really get involved or interfere at all with what they do, but they want to make sure that we know that they are here to support us if we need any kind of support. And and that's been sort of the approach, you know, from the very beginning. It's been one of how can they help us be a better wholesale partner for our retailers. But it's a like we've learned a tremendous amount from them around technology and innovation and using big data. I mean, they are experts at that. They test and learn. They move quickly. They're constantly looking at new ways in order to accelerate the use of technology in the jewelry space at jewelry retail. And we've tried to borrow some of that from them. It's a little harder because we're a wholesaler, so it's not always as applicable, but they really focus us on thinking that way all the time. And you're you're also selling Hearts on Fire in China, correct? How's that been? Yeah, that's been actually really successful. So they really purchased Hearts on Fire to make us stronger, allow us to be stronger everywhere we sell wholesale, but then to bring Hearts on Fire as a brand into the Chow Tai Fook network. So we are now sold in over 250 of their doors. And still to this day, it earns the highest margin of anything sold in the Chow Tai Fook network, which is really great. Wow. I'm really curious to know what kind of guidance they've given you this year. I mean, they obviously got hit in Hong Kong before we did with the pandemic. So what kind of guidance did they give you managing through the States in our subsequent pandemic? The funny thing is, you know, I was in Hong Kong and China. There's three or four of us there on meetings in late January. And we ended up flying out the Friday before Chinese New Year. So we were right there when it was just about to close down. And then for about six weeks, we were working, obviously, with our team, our partners in Hong Kong and China while they were on lockdown and their retail was closed. So when it started to look like that was happening in America, obviously, the most important thing was the safety of the team. So, you know, focus on the safety of the people, the communication and the importance of leaders to communicate clearly and frequently be ready for a long period of lockdown. And then lastly, we all need scenario plans. So you need to think about, you know, what happens if the Boston office closes? What happens if your retailers close? Come up with scenario plans that will allow you to still maximize the business opportunity while certain elements of your operation are stopped. So we make some of our jewelry in New York. If the New York vendors were closed, which they were soon to close, drop ship from Hong Kong. So we started doing a lot of that in March, April, May, because obviously the East was closed, but parts of the West never really closed or the middle of the country. 
And then even still now, like there's still varying degrees of anxiety around, you know, what potentially might happen in the next four weeks before Christmas. And, and obviously China had been through viruses before. Yeah, that's exactly right. So they they sort of were not familiar with it, but, you know, they wear masks all the time. So the whole country is wearing masks. They took the lockdown much more seriously. You know, Americans have a bit of a free spirit. So some people might follow the rules and other people might not. In China, everyone follows the rules. So they were able to really attack it very quickly in a sense where they were really now back to business in a more normal way. And among your Hearts on Fire and memoir, I guess, retailers here in the U.S., is there anything collectively you can say about them? Are they generally online selling through e-commerce? Were they able to remain open even when the stores were closed? Or would you say most are still getting there? No, I think, you know, one of the things that was really inspiring was how fast and nimble and savvy, I would say, most of them were. The ability for the independent jeweler to just become very nimble in their approach to business. I mean, the way they operate, they're very connected into their communities. There was a combination of, you know, shop local. Because they are smaller businesses, they could easily work around staff. And if they have multi-doors, you know, moving inventory around, they just really found a way to not take advantage of the situation, but do great business despite the horrible situation. For the last six months, a lot of people are really finding the safety and convenience of popping into an independent jewelry. And have you noticed any difference in consumer buying habits? Is fashion less of a factor now? No, I don't think fashion is less than a factor. And I guess everyone uses the word fashion differently. When I think of fashion for diamond jewelry, I sort of think of everything that is non-bridal. You know, I think there is an incredible focus on gifts of meaning and gifts of lasting value. I think people in 2020 have really put an appreciation on their loved ones and their close friends, particularly those that they haven't been able to see as much. And I think a lot of people have a lot of disposable income that they typically don't have. So if you were one of the fortunate people who did not have your job impacted, you also aren't spending the same amounts of money on a monthly basis that you always did. So now that the holidays are coming and you do have this appreciation and this desire to recognize those that are close to you, I think fine jewelry and diamond jewelry are really going to and have been reaping the benefits of that. And that's why I think many independent jewelers are doing really well. I mean, most of them, if you ask them, they'll say their business is thriving due to their watches and classic diamond jewelry and bridal. You know, I think for those young couples that were dating and had been toying with the idea of getting engaged, two things happened. One is they were locked down together. So it sort of proved to them that they could live together and they were in it for the long haul. And then the other thing is many people put off the engagement because they don't want the enormous investment in a wedding. What COVID in 2020 has shown is you can get engaged and get married and it's socially acceptable to have a smaller wedding, to only have family, to not have this enormous expense around a giant party. So I think all of these things combined are really leading toward a strong diamond year. 
You know, you mentioned independent jewelers, and I've certainly heard the same thing, just more nimble, more flexible, able to adapt a lot better this year than the more corporate and mall jewelers. Do you think that the pandemic in some way has reminded people of their community jeweler? And do you think that that might carry through into greater business overall in 2021, 22, 23? I mean, do you think this support of local retailers that we've seen this year is going to stick around? I absolutely do. I think consumers are realizing that there are other ways to experience retail. In the last six months, they've seen they could pick up, they can have it delivered, they can actually do all their research through a Zoom call before they step into a store. And in some ways, many people find that incredibly convenient. And I think that's great because I think one of the things that jewelers have to do is they have to reach outside of the jewelry store and find their customers and find their clients and bring the product to them. You know, one of the biggest problems we've had, I think, in jewelry retail is the number of people stepping over the threshold of a jewelry store has declined year after year after year. And that has forced us to have to close sales at a greater degree and close higher average prices at a greater degree in order to maintain the same levels of business. That is not changing. So while COVID may go away, those trends of you know 25-year-olds, 30-year-olds walking into a jewelry store, that's still going to continue to accelerate. And I think we need to find all the different ways we can conduct business with customers that may not look like they looked three years ago. When I met you guys at Hartshorn Bar University, I think it was last September, you know, you were rebranding as Chateau Folk North America, and you talked about Chateau Folk getting more of a presence in the United States and selling more generic jewelry. Is is that still an ongoing thing? Is Has that kind of been put on hold or is that something you're still working on? It's something that is definitely in our mind. I think, you know, one of the things we've realized is the enormous opportunity for us with Memoir and with Hearts on Fire. Memoir is an exceptional diamond brand. It is still not reaching the penetration levels among jewelry stores that it can. And while we're always open to exploring other products and business opportunities within the jewelry space, we really right now in the last 12 months have been much more focused on building Memoir with our current customers and Hearts on Fire, obviously. But we think there's an enormous potential for memoir, which is such an amazing and great value for classic diamond jewelry. You know, I feel like all this talk of diamonds, I can't help but ask what your philosophy is on the lab-grown diamond market and where that fits into this fine jewelry space. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm one of those worriers. <laughs> like, I'm really worried about lab-grown and The reason I worry about lab-grown is I understand the attraction for retailers to sell lab-grown because of the margins. I could see why they're selling them, but I really worry about the younger sort of part of our consumer target and those women who are being led to believe that a lab-grown center in their engagement ring is the same. And 
it's not the same. You know, I believe diamonds are from the earth. They are rare creatures of nature. And, you know, I do believe that if we spend the next five years convincing young men and women that a lab-grown diamond can be the center of an engagement ring, and then five years from now, the price drops, as everyone anticipates it will, then what does that do to how these young people view the category of diamonds? Usually the engagement ring is the first piece of diamond jewelry most women have, and then they go on to buy their studs and their pendants and their bracelets. And yeah, I just worry, what will this do five and 10 years from now if we as an industry are selling them this idea that a lab-grown center is the same? When you look at the jewelry space, you know, where do you see the future going? You know, I, I do believe that we need to figure out the self-purchase sort of message. You know, how did De Beers do it? What did they do? They had this campaign for right-hand rings that really didn't do what it was intended to do, but I think it wasn't the right time. I do believe maybe not a right-hand ring campaign, but a self-purchase campaign for diamond jewelry is something that the entire industry should get behind together. I think that is sort of what the category needs for a huge shot in the arm. We've been talking about it for 15 years. I would love to find, you know, the playbook and the group of people, the group of leaders that can help us figure out once and for all how to build self-purchase in a real and meaningful way. I think we just have to remember the incredible role we play in helping consumers articulate the most meaningful emotions they have for those that they love. And we are the conduit to that. So, you know, when you think about the role diamond jewelry has in people's lives, it's usually at the center of the most memorable, most meaningful events. And sometimes you can't always articulate how you feel, but a gift of diamond jewelry does it for them. And that's an incredible role. So I think it's pretty, pretty exceptional. It's an amazing industry. And I am very optimistic about the opportunity that it will present us all with in the future. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. Our editor is Olivia Briley. If you like what you've heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. We hope you join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.